I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Eiffel Tower, which stands at still at the highest monument in Paris, not in the world, of course, uh, could be seen even today as a kind of awkward monument. Uh, a structure, uh, kind of unusual shape with this uh, Iron girder, uh, iron lattice, very uh, light and delicate. And so it's a very uh, surprising object, still standing today. Uh, And of course, when you're a bit informed about history of structures, history of architecture, history of engineering, then of course you can date it back to the 19th century. But to my opinion, it has kept, even today, uh, something very fresh, very new. Very surprising, still amazing today for uh, most people who visit it anyway, but also for people who see it and see it from a distance because now it's become, of course, a, a very widely known symbol of, uh, of Paris, even of France. And not only of the 19th century architecture and art society which produced the Eiffel Tower. Tower, Tower, Tower. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And you're listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Jason is off at a uh, kids hockey tournament and they moved the game on him so he's unable to join us today. But Michelle, we, uh, we're going to talk about the Eiffel Tower today. Um, I believe you said you've been before, right? 
I have definitely been to the Eiffel Tower in all of my many travels. However, I have not been since 2005. So it's been a long time. So it's been a while for you. Um, so this, this call will be a, a nice refresher for you. But we have, uh, we have a couple guests that are going to join us today to, to jump into this conversation. This is sort of a crossover episode. So they are now, and they messed up our little play on the name because <laughs> they just changed their, uh, their podcast name. So they are formerly Midnight Charette. And we were going to call this the Midnight Spaces uh, crossover podcast, but they just changed it to Second Studio. Uh, they are an explicit podcast about design, architecture, and the everyday. It's hosted by architects David Lee and Marina Bordelone. It features different creative professionals in unscripted and long format interviews with thoughtful takes and personal discussions. Honesty and humor are used to cover a wide array of subjects. So the host, David Lee, is a registered architect in California and New York. He's worked in numerous offices on a variety of projects, and he teaches undergraduate architecture and urban design in California. And Marina Bordelone is a registered architect in New York and a lead green associate. She's worked in several architecture and design offices in New York City and Paris and currently lives in Southern California. Please help me welcome David and Marina. David, Marina, thank you for joining us. How's it going, man? Good. Uh, glad you guys can join us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having us. Um, I, I thought, you know, you were correct. The Midnight Spaces would have been pretty <laughs> awesome. I suppose you could call it the Second Spaces. I don't know. Maybe not as seductive as Midnight but we're glad to be here. Um, uh, you want to say hi? <laughs> hey, how's it going? <laughs> so outside of the bio, is there anything that um, that you guys like to kind of set up for the audience? Not so much. Um, I, I think, well, it's going to be obvious in a second, but uh, the one thing I would add on Marina's behalf is that she is from France. And I'm sure I? we're going to hear about that. <laughs> Um, it's pertinent to this conversation. That's working on my accent. You have just ruined it. <laughs> and for me, I'm from California. I'm quite boring in that sense. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, uh, so you guys have been, you guys have started, uh, or you've been doing Midnight Charette for some time now. How long has it been? You know, that's a good question. That's I think, a good question. I think it's been three years. I think um, it's been more than that. More than that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. Somewhere around three, three and a half years, perhaps something. Our memory is a little bit fuzzy because we started the podcast uh, when we were in New York. And there's been, obviously, chapters in our lives since then. It's been quite a roller coaster. Um, and as you mentioned, I think, in the intro, that uh, the podcast is was just renamed um, as of when we're recording actually technically on iTunes and et cetera, renamed as of like eight hours ago to the second studio. Um, so that's been quite a big uh, change for us. Yeah. I, uh, I cannot imagine <laughs> what, what that involves, uh, changing the podcast name and going through all the rebranding process of that. So I, I, I don't know that I would take that on. 
it's we're not busy enough so no. you know, we're like hey I, guess what let's just rebrand yeah i do not want to do it again that it was not i mean we're still in the middle of it sort of um but it's a quite an effort and i have no intention of changing the name a, a, a second time after this round but I, I feel like the name that we have now the new one um will last for a while and and be good for us i, I hope right i hope <laughs> So we asked you guys on, um, we've done this sort of, I guess it's kind of a, a landmark series, I guess I will, I guess we can call it, um, mm-hmm. where we're talking about different, you know, existing landmarks around the world. Uh, we did the Space Needle last year, and so we're going to do the Eiffel Tower this year. And sort of the idea behind it is to kind of talk about these landmarks and get a sense of how generational perception of landmarks is evolving and talk a little bit to um, that specific landmark. And we, we've we already sort of thrown out our thoughts on our, in the general idea of landmarks. So we want to try to, I think we're going to try to do this consistently is bring in just other people from other generations and to add to this conversation, this ongoing conversation, as well as highlighting the individual uh, landmarks around the world. So we today we're as I mentioned we're going to talk about the Eiffel Tower. But to give you a little bit of a better understanding before we give you our opinions, we're going to go back in time. Eighteen seventy three. A financial crisis in Europe and North America known as the Panic of 1873 triggered a worldwide economic recession until 1879 or 1896, depending on metrics used. It was most severe in Europe and the United States. In Great Britain, it went on for two decades and became known as the Long Depression, which weakened the country's economic leadership. In the middle of this financial turmoil, France was approaching the 100th anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, which marked the beginning of the French Revolution. To celebrate this anniversary, and to stimulate the economy, pulling France out of the recession, the World's Fair was scheduled to be held in Paris, France in 1889. To get additional insight into the Eiffel Tower, I spoke with Bertrand Lemoine, architect and historian who specializes in 19th century architecture and published several books on the Eiffel Tower, including a book simply titled The Eiffel Tower, published by Taschen, which is a reprint of the original book by Gustave Eiffel, where Bertrand wrote the introduction, comments, and captions to ensure the technical details were widely available to the public. This exhibition had a special signification, of course. It celebrated the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution, a big political event, of course, but also the kind of recovery of France and progression of France as a major industrial country with um, competition with England, with uh, Germany, with the US starting also. So it was very important for France to show that it was capable of big achievements, of even surprising and stupendous uh, engineering achievements to show that uh, to the world that France was able and the French industry in particular was able to build very uh, new uh, structures. Coincidentally, earlier in June 1884, 
Emile Nogier and Maurice Kikla, the two chief engineers of a company specializing in metal structural work, had the idea for a tall tower. It was to be designed like a large pylon with four columns of latticework girders separated at the base and coming together at the top. The company was founded by Gustav Eiffel, an engineer by training, noted bridge engineer with advanced knowledge of metal arches and truss forms, and who had recently built the iron frame of the Statue of Liberty. Leading up to the fair, the Centennial Committee held a design competition for a suitable monument to mark the historic occasion and a gateway entry to the exposition. Of over 107 entries, it was announced in 1886 that Gustave Eiffel's firm was awarded the commission. Eiffel struck a deal where he would build the tower at his own expense, but would benefit from a 1.5 million franc subsidy to the total estimated cost of 6.5 million francs, and could manage the tower for 20 years, starting on December 31, 1889. Its ownership would then pass back to the city of Paris who owned the land. Eiffel's concept was a 300 meter or 984 foot tower with a base 100 meters wide, which would be the tallest structure in the world at the time. The curvature of the columns is mathematically determined to offer the most efficient wind resistance possible. For final touches, and to make the tower more acceptable to the public, Gustav commissioned architect Stephen Sylvest to further develop the form and decorative elements which gave it its distinctive appearance. Sylvest's initial design was much more ornate, including stone pedestals to dress the legs, monumental arches to link the columns, glass-walled halls on each level, and a bulb-shaped design for the top. In the end, it was greatly simplified to what you see today. Lastly, the glass cage machines designed by the Otis Elevator Company became a prominent feature of the structure that would help establish it as one of the world's premier tourist attractions. Construction for the tower began January 1887 and was completed in record time, two years, two months, and five days. Yeah, the process was, of course, uh, based on the experience of uh, Gustav Eiffel and his firm, because he has created his own firm, of course. It was not the only, only firm in the world, uh, or even in France, building uh, such uh, iron or, or steel structures. But it was based on his experience. And it was a, a kind of elaboration of uh, large bridges, for example, that he built in France or in Portugal or elsewhere. But then the, the, the process of the construction was already a very industrialized process, a prefabrication process. Most all the all the parts of the tower were prefabricated in Levallois Perret, very small town just near Paris, where the uh, Eiffel factory was located. They were designed there, drawn. Uh, the holes were were uh, were made. The pieces were cut at the right lengths. The part of the rivets were put already in in the shop, and then the parts were put on carriages drawn by uh, horses to the site of the tower, some kilometers away. And then the process was very simple. The reaction with small cranes, steam engine cranes, very small, and lifting progressively the pieces on the, on the site and putting them together. And then the cranes will, would raise with the tower, following, of course, the erection of the tower. So a very uh, simple process with a kind of very simple means of construction, 
but already uh, in the philosophy of modern construction. 18,000 pieces. The construction took 150 workers in the factory and 150 to 300 workers on site to assemble the structure. On site, all metal pieces were riveted together. It only took five months to build the foundations, but 21 months to assemble the structure. Even though only a third of the 2.5 million rivets used in the construction of the tower were installed on site, it took a team of four to install each rivet, one to heat it up, another to hold it in place, a third to shape the head, and a fourth to beat it in with a sledgehammer. Journalist Emile Goudot described the scene during a visit to the construction site at the beginning of 1889. Quote, A thick cloud of tar and coal smoke seized the throat, and we were deafened by the din of metal screaming beneath the hammer. Over there they were still working on the bolts, Workmen with their iron bludgeons perched on a ledge just a few centimeters wide took turns at striking the bolts. One could have taken them for blacksmiths contentedly beating out a rhythm on an anvil in some village forge, except that these smiths were not striking up and down vertically, but horizontally. And as with each blow came a shower of sparks, these black figures appearing larger than life against the background of the open sky looked as if they were reaping lightning bolts in the clouds. Imagine the, the construction of the tower starting and the slow erection at the beginning of the tower in the context, of course, of a world exhibition, which was, of course, something uh, a bit uh, special because other buildings were being built at the same time. So the opinion was looking at one big exhibition being built. But when the Eiffel uh, Tower reached uh, about the height of the surrounding buildings, which is about uh, 20, 30 meters. The first level is 58 meters high. Then people started to realize that it would be really a very, very big monument, that it would be seen from a long distance. And that's the time where there was a kind of a reaction from um, not the opinion itself, but uh, I would say the intelligentsia, the artistic intelligentsia in, in Paris where some famous uh, writers like Guy de Maupassant, very famous at the time, Charles Garnier. Charles Garnier was the architect of the opera, of the new Paris opera, just opened. Or Charles Gounod, another musician, another well-known people at the time, protested against the construction of, uh, of this very industrial-looking monument. Iron structure, very few decoration, in contradiction maybe of the architecture, the new architecture that you could see in Paris with uh, uh, stone facades, and so on. And maybe they were right to say that this was a very industrial building, but this industrial building was built, was built in the context of the, of the world exhibition. Some critics didn't hold back, referring to the tower as a, quote, truly tragic street lamp, and, quote, a mass of iron gymnasium apparatus, incomplete, confused, and deformed, and, quote, a half-built factory pipe, a carcass waiting to be flushed out with freestone or brick, a funnel-shaped grill, a hole-riddled suppository, end quote. By its completion and the opening of the fair, much of the criticism subsided in the excitement for the exposition. The tower received 2 million visitors during the World's Fair, and the exposition overall attracted 61,722 official exhibitors, of whom 25,000 were from outside of France, 
and more than 32 million visitors. Surprising to some, the tower's dubious road to becoming a heralded icon did not end there. Did you know that it was supposed to be dismantled after 20 years? After the World's Fair, a lag in popularity and initial lack of utility put the tower's future in jeopardy. However, from early on, Gustav knew that he needed to find a use beyond a symbol and spectacle. So he, he tried many, many ways to, to show that the tower was not a useless monument, not only a monument for World Fair, for an attraction, but a monument which has scientific interest. So we use the tower for scientific experiments, like uh, uh, letting some uh, shapes fall from the second floor to see how it would uh, withstand the wind resistance, putting some observatory for meteorologic observations on the tower, uh, making some physiological experiments and, well, different things, but not really uh, enough to convince the authorities that it was compulsory to keep the tower. The fact the, which really brought to the tower a, a very consistent importance was the fact that uh, Eiffel landed the tower to the military authorities to conduct radio transmission experiments. A new technique in signal transmission called wireless telegraphy was emerging. Eiffel invited inventor Eugene Ducreté to carry out experiments. Ducreté was interested in making practical use of radio waves, and on November 5, 1898, he established the very first radio contact in Morse code between the Eiffel Tower and the Pantheon, four kilometers away. A transmitting station was then installed permanently on the tower. In 1899, it enabled radio transmissions with London, attracting the attention of military authorities. Gustave offered to finance the installation of an antenna stand at the tower's summit from which a cable could then be run to the center of Champ de Mars. He contracted with the military to run audio experiments to the tower. With a small team of specialists in a shack at the foot of the south pillar, experiments were conducted which ultimately led to communications 6,000 kilometers or over 3,700 miles away in 1908. In 1909, a permanent station was built underneath Champ de Mars. The tower's strategic interest was now confirmed, and Gustave Eiffel was granted an extension to his concession for an additional 70 years. It was actually from the tower's summit that many German messages were intercepted during the First World War, allowing the French to thwart the German attack and turn the tide of the war and push through to final victory. It narrowly escaped destruction a second time in World War II, as Hitler ordered its demolition during the German occupation of Paris. But the command was never carried out. It's not clear exactly why the command was never carried out, but French resistance also famously disrupted Hitler's plan to gaze over a captive Paris from the top of the Eiffel Tower. To deprive him and his Nazi forces the satisfaction, French resistance cut the lift cables for the tower's elevators, forcing them to endure the strenuous climb of 1,500 steps to do so. Hitler, in his 50s and reportedly out of shape, opted for a photo from the ground with the tower in the background. Over the years, Gustave's concession allowed him to make back the money he had invested without ever really owning the tower. 
In the 1880s, full ownership transferred back to the city of Paris, who then entrusted its management to a development company which owns 99% of the capital. In 1986, it underwent a major facelift and is now repainted every seven years. Today, it continues to serve an important role in television and radio broadcasts. It is considered an architectural wonder and attracts an estimated 7 million visitors annually, more than any other paid tourist attraction in the world. Each time I go there, I, I look at the tower as something amazing, something new, something really uh, incredible. Very light, very thin, a lot of air and, uh, and void inside the structure, not so much elements. Also very original, and I think it has kept this uh, kind of uh, fancy look since it was built 130 years ago, and uh, that's what's surprising. It's not—it's a monument which is a bit uh, out of time. It's not like looking at the Paris Opera or a building of the 19th century or even from earlier times, which really are buildings dated to uh, related to the time uh, they were built. With a tower, it. It has something uh, abstract uh, in, its, in its look, uh, which makes it uh, not closely related to a specific time of construction, except maybe for, for, for some specialists. So that's why it's always reinventing itself in, in a way. And when you go there, when I go there, I always <laughs> feel this, uh, this strange uh, feeling that uh, yeah, I'm really in some place exceptional. The Eiffel Tower arose through much skepticism early on to become regarded as Paris's most recognizable monument for the 1889 World's Fair and an iconic symbol beyond. I think the, the tower has, a, has kept part of its initial message in a way. Uh, it was designed as a kind of uh, engineering feat with a high structure never built before and of course, there are towers now which are three times the height of the tower, almost 1,000 meters. But when you look at the tower, you still feel the uh, achievement, the engineering achievement behind. You say, wow, how they were able to build that. And even if it was built today, it will still be very impressive. So it bears a kind of optimism, uh, of course, a confidence in the future, in progress, material progress, in technology and so on, which is, of course, something which is under or the discussion today, maybe, of course. But this is still a message, I think, that the, the tower conveys. Also, it has now uh, become more than a, a building. It has become a symbol, symbol of Paris, with a very simple logo, with a curved shape, very powerful logo, and symbolizing not only Paris, France, maybe, but symbolizing it uh, with a, a kind of abstract uh, dimension. And maybe, for me, it symbolizes the fact that Paris of France is not only a city or a country which has been, of course, developing in the past centuries, but also which is aiming to the future and adapted, able to adapt itself to new, new situations. And that's, I think, a message maybe the tower conveys even in a kind of subliminal way, indeed. Okay, guys, so what are your thoughts... Um... Anything that kind of jumps out in your mind, first of all, from that recording? 
Well, uh, the gentleman definitely knows his history for sure. Um, you know, we're Marina and I are not historians. Uh, we are both practicing <laughs> architects and designers. Um, so hopefully, we can provide some kind of some different insights than than him. Um, but uh, pleasure to listen to good accent. I was <laughs> <laughs> powerful accent. Authentic. <laughs> yeah, truly authentic. <laughs> your accent, Marina, is going away. You got to work on that. You got to bring well, it back. It's your fault. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, you know, the Eiffel Tower was obviously a, a, a significant structure of its time, but it's, it's as you mentioned before, it's, it's interesting to see how some of these structures, they have uh, a very different meaning throughout, its, throughout their lives, right? They have a different meaning uh, before they're constructed. As it was mentioned, the Eiffel Tower was faced with some, some opposition, for sure. And then once it was constructed, that was for certain reasons. And then fast forward to today, uh, I think for the general consumer, right, we understand the tower to be slightly different. Yeah, I would definitely agree there. So um, so for you guys, Marina, you live there. Uh, I don't know if you've lived there as well for any I period did. of time, David. Um, but for you guys, prior, I guess if there, if you can go back in your memory, prior to visiting, if you have or have not, um, prior to visiting, did you have initial sort of perception or thoughts about the Eiffel Tower? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm from a, a small town, probably like an hour north of Paris. So I'm not a Parisian. Uh, and I think the Eiffel Tower probably didn't mean as much as native Parisians uh, usually does. Um, so growing up to me, the, the Eiffel Tower was kind of the symbol of Paris. Um, and actually the, the soccer team of Paris, that they, they use it as their logo, uh, which tells you like how strong of an image the Eiffel Tower is for, for Paris. So growing up, I didn't really care so much about it, I would say. Um, it didn't mean a whole lot to me. And, and I would go to Paris once in a while with my parents and we would see it, but we would never go and visit it because it was, it was always understood as being this thing for tourists or for Parisians, but anyone else, that, that no one really cared. Um, so it actually took me quite a few years. I lived in Paris for five years, and believe it or not, I think I went to visit it my last year there, uh, when David actually came to visit me. That's probably the only reason why I went. I was like, okay, he's coming <laughs> to visit me from California. He wants to see it. He wants to, you know, like, like go on it. I was like, fine, I, I, you know, I'll go. Um, but it took me it took me a while to to actually visit it. But but I think this gets to uh, our larger kind of point that the perception that a lot of French who are not from Paris have of Paris, right? right. Like my relationship to Paris as a very average um, uh, American, uh, well, oh, you know, Chinese American, we can say, growing up is that Paris is a very romantic place. There's love. There's you know, accordions and all the cliches you can possibly think of. And so, but those are a lot of ways are very positive emotions toward the city of Paris, and then therefore, let's say the Eiffel Tower. But like in your case, Marina, and I think for a, a fair number of French people who are not in Paris, their perception of that city is not as uh, uh, seductive, right? Well, and we know Parisians, so if you're not a Parisian, you know there is this like tension between Parisian and, and provincial, and and that whole kind of. Um, you know, split there. Um, but I, I, but I think my perception of it has changed since I went because I went with other people. I think, you know, that I, I enjoy going there now and I've actually been there like at least twice or twice or even three times. 
And every time I enjoy it, not so much for the experience of the building itself, but more seeing how the people I go with perceive it, you know, like, like foreigners and families and friends who've never seen it before. Um, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you talk about being an average American, David, and your experience with Paris. Um, I've traveled all over the world. I've been to seven continents. And I will say that when you go to Paris, you almost have this sense of it would be remiss to not go to the Eiffel Tower, to not climb the Eiffel Tower, to not take 100,000 photos of it and sit in the lawn that, that you know, sits right in front of it. Um, it's, it's that type of attraction that you kind of, you know, as a, as a non-Parisian uh, and as, as someone who's not from France, I think you, your relationship with, uh, with the structure is that one of the reasons why you would go to Paris, aside from an experience, but one of the reasons you would go is to actually experience the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, no, I think that's 100% correct. Um, and there's something about big landmarks and monuments and icons of cities that, you know, it's almost... So for me, the first time I visited Paris, um, I, I wasn't even so conscious that I could say that I thought I need to experience the tower. It was more like I just need to see it and be fairly close to it because then that means I've arrived in Paris, right? If if I don't see it and I'm not fairly close to it, then I somehow I've, I've missed Paris, which is kind of an absurd thing to think, although you can see the tower everywhere in Paris. So the, and there's a whole other dimension to, to the Eiffel Tower and kind of observatory uh, towers and decks uh, in terms of an experience point. So, but for me, the perception beforehand was very much like how we just discussed. And it was <laughs> literally, just, I just need to see it, right? Because somehow that means something. <laughs> then you could go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I would also, you know, I, I would say that that's not unique to the Eiffel Tower though, right? Like there no. are places all over the world that, that, yeah, you're right. You maybe don't need to actually physically climb the tower, but if you don't see it, and if you don't take a snapshot in front of it, and if you don't photograph it from every single angle, then you sort of feel like, well, was I even in Paris? Um, but I think there's cities all across the, the world that have iconic structures, um, like the Space Needle, or like the Statue of Liberty, or um, the London, London, uh, uh, sorry, Big Ben in London. Uh, you know, there's these structures that you feel like, it, you, have you really even been or experienced the the city without having seen and, and uh, witnessed that that iconic structure? It's funny you guys say that because we recently went, well, not recently now, but um, it's probably been almost two years. We went to Seattle and we did see the Space Needle, but another spot that I wanted to see was the, the library. I um, can't remember the exact name of it, but the, the new library there. And it was literally across the street, but we got our time mixed up somehow. And uh, the day that I planned to go there, it was closed. So ended up not being able to go inside. Even though I saw it from the outside, I really wanted to walk the interior. And because we didn't get to do that, I feel like my Seattle trip is not really a full Seattle trip in my mind. So I have this empty feeling of now I got to go back because <laughs> if I would have gone uh, and been able to walk it, I probably wouldn't necessarily go back to Seattle anytime soon. But now I feel like I have to go back sometime soon. Are you talking about the Olme project? Yeah, exactly. Right. 
Oh, yeah. I As an architect, I, I feel you on that. If I had gotten there and seen the outside but not been inside, I would have to say I'd have to go back. But that's the thing, right? Like when you go when you go and travel places, you feel like you have to see those monuments because you don't know when you're going to be back there next, right? Yeah. Is that going to be your only time there, you know, or are you going to come back? You don't know. If you're a local, like my plan was never to go to the Eiffel Tower before I moved to New York City because I was like, you know what? It's always going to be there. Like anytime I go back home, I could go and, and, and see it. I'm going to go back to France at some point. Right. So, so the the feeling of of missing it or having to do and uh, to visit it right away is 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 very different. No, I, I think that's true, and you know, there's, I mean, I don't know. Listen, when the art within the architecture and design community, some of the more more hardcore architects, it's almost frowned upon. You know, if you visit some of these touristy icons, it's frowned upon if you go up to the top of it and partake in the tourist attractions. Um, and there's some truth to that only in the sense that if you limit your vision to Paris to just the Eiffel Tower or you put too much pressure on a single object, then yeah, of course that's the case. But, you know, as Marina said, also for a lot of people traveling is expensive and there's a, it's just logical. Like you, of course you're going to see the Eiffel Tower. You're going to go to Paris and not see, you might not return to Paris. And there's an experiential kind of, um, value to, to these towers and places as well. Right. I mean, giving you a new perspective of the city and things like this. So, so uh, that's a good point. So, where or great transition point. So, <laughs> when you guys did visit, um, and it's funny that Marina, this was it was your first time was when David joined you. Uh, <laughs> it's can so you guys, embarrassing. Can you guys sort of walk us through what that that trip was like and sort of any emotional or or if it was devoid of emotion when you did go what was that experience like um sort of walking through the or walking up the tower or however you experienced it um so it happened back in i think it was like 2010 and we went in september which actually was a great time to go visit the tower because most of the tourists are back home and no one is there, so it was it was really nice. Uh, we ended up going by the end of the day to kind of get the the city lights at night to make it even more magical. So it was some sort of you know like tourist bucket list for David, but also like a romantic evening. No, 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 no. You're sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes, this, is, this is an inaccurate description of, of I, what your head would happen. Yeah, I had already been to the tower. I'd been to the top of the tower before that. We were going because you had never gone. So don't don't make it seem like well, you had to do this because of me. You didn't need to say that. Gosh. <laughs> anyway, but we actually didn't make it to the top because we only make it to the to the first first level. Yeah. Um, we had a terrorist attack alert, so they they you know ask everyone to evacuate. So we basically just made it to the first level. Were there for a few minutes, and then we had to take the stairs down to evacuate. So it was kind of a, a big fail, you know, to be honest. What, what year was this? It was 20, 2010, right? It's 2010, okay. Yeah, 2010. Yeah. Uh, nothing happened. Nothing it happened. was, you know, I think everyone was kind of on edge with monuments at that time, um, even if it has been a few years since, you know, most of the, the attacks. Um, but th there, there is no joke. As soon as there is, like, the, the, you know, the smallest alert there, like, they just evacuate everybody. Um, Apparently, it's pretty common. It's very common. Afterwards. And we didn't get a refund. So it was, you know, like 20 euros or whatever really? it was. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. God. You know, French, French style. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, was, I, was not, uh, I was not happy about it. Um, 
So that was the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so that completely dampened your trip. Did you did you go back and sort of re relive an experience that was a little more positive? Yeah, we actually went back there with both of our parents a few years later. And I think it might have been for my parents the first time they were up in the <laughs> Eiffel Tower <laughs> to tell you that, you know, they're in their mid-60s and, and it was their first time. And David's parents was their first time too, so it was kind of a, a big day for everybody. Um, it actually was a success. We made it to the top. Uh, yeah. You know, we even put a little chain lock up there with our names on it for everyone. So it was it was a pretty memorable, memorable adventure. Um, yeah, I don't know if people know this, but it's a, it's a thing that happens maybe in other cities too. But Parisians, they just put locks on everything. Yeah, you know? there's this thing where you place locks on across, was it Pont Neuf? Not on one of the bridges? Uh, not Pont Neuf, the Pont des Arts, the okay. art, art bridge. Right, and um, then there's locks at the top of the Eiffel Tower too. And my my mom was so intent on doing this. And I, you know, the tower is like, what, how many feet tall? 1,300 feet or something? It's really freaking tall. And I just thought, and it's open, fairly open at the top. And I thought, you're going to drop this thing. It's going to rocket down to the bottom at like 60 miles an hour and impale someone. And so I was so nervous. I couldn't watch her do it. I'm like, I'm not watching you do it. You're fumbling <laughs> around. <laughs> this is going to be a disaster. We're going to get arrested. I don't remember the locks being there when I was at the Eiffel Tower in 2005. Hmm. Is that? I, I know that, that locks on bridges in Paris is very common, but... I don't yeah. remember on the Eiffel Tower. Has that been going on for a long time? I don't believe so. Uh, but, you know, they had to take the locks off of that famous bridge in the center of Paris because it was actually putting too much weight on the bridge. No, um, it's nonsense. Well, Maybe that's what they much... said. Okay. I don't know. Maybe, you know, because people couldn't put any new ones and they decided to, you know, Maybe. do a clean slate. So they <laughs> took them off. They took them off the bridge. And I think that's probably from that point that people just started putting them on other bridges <laughs> and even the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> You know, they're like, fine. You know, I would just find another spot to do it. <laughs> so, so I just did a quick search of the of the height of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, 984 feet, 1,063 to the tip. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know none of us are physicists, but yes, <laughs> the velocity of that lock hitting the, hitting the concrete oh, below man. would be pretty I, bad. I, <laughs> yeah. I think you yeah. would seriously damage um, someone for sure. Absolutely. The, the first time I visited the tower was, I don't know, 2008 or nine, and, and I don't recall seeing logs up the top either. So maybe it's a relatively new thing. Yeah, that would be interesting to, to, um, to see. Because I think those places, they like most of those places, like the Gum Alley in Seattle, <laughs> uh, where those locks are, usually when they fill up, they have to cut down or scrape everything and sort of refreshen it. <laughs> Um, so maybe that was the case if they do continue to do it or people got upset that they took off the locks on the bridge and they moved them up to, to the tower one way or another. But um, Michelle, did you want to talk a little bit about your experience with uh, your visit? Yeah, I mean, it was it was so long ago, to be honest. It was 2005. I was studying abroad in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, my junior year of college and it was a spring semester and I actually traveled to Paris uh, for a week's time with some uh, uh, other students that were studying abroad who actually were from Canada 
So the three of us, no, I'm sorry, the two of us went to Paris, stayed there for the week. And it was, as I kind of said before, it was one of those monuments that you sort of just felt like you needed to check the box. Um, I do remember taking photos of it from every angle throughout the city where I could see it. And for some reason, it was like one of those, those places where you just can't help yourself but to snap photographs of it. And bear in mind, this was, you know, in the time before cell phones, when you had a, an old fashioned camera with, um, at that time, it was uh, the, the micro, what do they call those, the micro USB? Um, I can't remember what the, the disc is that goes inside of a camera, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like how the social media craze where you, you take these photos and post it. But my point being, it was an old fashioned camera. And yet I, for some reason, couldn't help but photograph it um, from every angle. And in terms of my experience, what's odd is, is I don't actually remember the climb up very well. I remember, I remember being at the top, but only sort of. Um, and so that, when I reflect on it today, you know, 15 years later, 15 and a half years later, it's interesting to me because you would think, I mean, for, for something as iconic as it is, you would think that it would stand out to me more, um, but it doesn't. You know, I don't remember that day in arriving in so much anticipation. I, I remember it more so as like a thing that I'm supposed to do because I'm in Paris. Um, you know what I mean? So, but what I should have done prior to this recording is actually pulled up the photos that I took in 2005 on my old fashioned camera, digital camera, to just refresh my memory of what that experience was like for me. Because sitting here 15 and a half years later, it doesn't stand out as some, you know, monumental experience that I've had in my, in my travels and in my life. Um, but I do know that while I was there, as I said earlier, I couldn't stop photographing it. I mean, every single time I saw it and then, and then, you know, it would light up and I don't remember what the cadence is of when it lights up and sparkles, but you, you sort of like, you'd, you'd wait for that in anticipation. And then as soon as it would happen, you'd, you'd start snapping the photos again. And you're like, Oh my God, I've already taken, you know, 400 photos of this, but yet somehow I'm drawn to it again. Um, like a moth to a flame. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think that's like it's, it's partially because of the like we were talking about the, the pressure we put on the tower uh, as a as a tourist or as a as a non French person. But also it has to do with the tower itself. Right. It's the fact that it's the it might still be the tallest structure in France or certainly in Paris. And there's nothing really around it that matches its height. It's its form is iconic, and you can pretty much see it from everywhere in Paris. And it mm-hmm. and in a lot of cases, it takes in fact, effort to not see the tower. So it, it becomes this well, kind of... Ga- what? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it depends where you are. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. But but it becomes this kind of game of this object that you constantly have a relationship to, and buildings are always framing it. So it's a very photogenic um, piece in that sense, right? If you're right. Catching, catching glimpses of it between buildings as, you, as you're on the subway or the metro or you're walking down the street, it's it's always being framed up for you in some way. Yeah. That's exactly right. That makes a lot of sense. The the ascension to to up to the tower is actually I do remember it and I think it was it's pretty fascinating because from the 
point where you get at the entry where you buy your ticket to pretty much where you get off the elevator and see the view, it's like a one continuous shot, you know, because everything is open. There is no, there is no interruptions. There is no walls. There is no elevators that are enclosed. So you, you feel like you're really traveling from the ground up continuously. And the fact that the elevators are going at an angle was Mm -hmm. really fun and exciting to me because I was like, whoa, it's the first time I get in an elevator that goes in that direction, you know, and you can get really up close to the structure by, by being in it. Um, so I do remember that, that moment very, very strongly. And, and also when we, when we stood underneath the tower, right in the center, and you look up, I remember I was like, whoa, like you get the scale of this, of this structure. Um, and the day we went to the second time, I think it wasn't very, very busy. So the the ground the ground floor was pretty much emptied of people. So you just see those four legs kind of standing on the ground, and you feel you feel absolutely minuscule. You feel really, really tiny. When I think when you're at the top, you actually kind of lose the sense of scale because everything is so far and re and removed from you that you don't really know those tiny buildings that you see, like what actually, like what size they mm -hmm. are and at what height you are up in the sky. Um, so I would say to anyone who goes to see the tower, really pay attention to to kind of that procession from when you approach the tower to when you go up because that's kind of where your 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 body gets challenged with with scale and perceptions of things yeah that's so fascinating so for me i haven't been so i have this uh this whole disconnect right now in experience and um i think right now i'm sort of on that you know task list uh sort of mindset of visiting it and it's more so i don't know that i've talked about this or not on our podcast but um, so my grandfather was part of a big um, old rock group and they have this sort of iconic photo in our family where I think it was for an album cover or something of part of their world tour and they have a photo of their group sitting I'm not quite sure where it is exactly but it's somewhere within a square near the Eiffel Tower and uh, there's like some steps that come down. So their whole group's sitting on those steps and you can see the Eiffel Tower in the back. And I think two, my dad and his sister have both made it to Paris and taken, recreated that photo sitting um, near or exactly where um, our gra my grandfather was. So now it's like on my bucket list. That's that's one <laughs> part of it. It was why I need to go there, uh, just for that connect that lineage and sort of connection to to recreate that photo for sure. No, that's amazing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so outside of your experience, after you you hit the ground, did did you guys were you mindful of maybe how your perception changed for all three of you? Um, did you think did you think of it differently? Did it add something to you as far as like how you look at these types of structures? I think I felt differently, you know, when I said like, oh, you know, to me, the, the Eiffel Tower was this Parisian symbol, right? Well, after I went with people who are not Parisian and I was like, well, you know what? I enjoyed it and I understand it differently. And I went up and I... I think I think about it and I see it now more as a almost like a lighthouse in Paris. Like it makes me feel safe to kind of walk around the city and know that 
it's there, it's gonna sparkle at night, you know, people are going up and down, it's, it's been there for, for years, and it's probably going to be there maybe forever. Um, so it became kind of this very reassuring symbol to me after that. Hmm. That's interesting. Sort of like the, uh, what is it, the canary in the coal mine, sort of. Right. Just, there's just like this comfort level of a constant. Yeah, something that that you know will be there. Like it doesn't really matter what architects start building in Paris. Like the Eiffel Tower is there. We're good, you know. <laughs> David, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think the well, one I, I would agree with Marina's like point about the procession, and I think that has to do with the specific form of the tower itself. Um, <clears throat> Like, uh, I've been to the top of the Eiffel Tower twice. I've been to the Pearl Tower, uh, which twice, which I believe actually might be on your guys' logo, if I'm not mistaken. And I've been to the top of the Empire State Building and the World Trade Center Freedom Tower. So, like, going to the top of towers is kind of something I enjoy doing. And in part because it gives you a new uh, view, a visual view, but also conceptual understanding of cities. And... um but the Eiffel Tower is different in a lot of senses because it's an open structure. So there's this continuity that you get from the ground level, the base level, all the way up. And because the oblique elevator that you're in is um, has a lot of windows, you're not you're never disconnected, right? On the extreme, like the Freedom Tower, let's say, or, or the Empire State Building you are entering a building, right? That building has a function to it. You get into an elevator. And in the case of the Empire State Building, the elevator is just an elevator. Um, and so you're, there's a kind of dis detachment that you have from the structure itself, and there's a detachment in the procession from the ground to the eventual top. Whereas in the Eiffel Tower, it's much more continuous, and the engagement is kind of maintained throughout that process because as you're moving through the structure, the structure itself is framing the city back for you, hmm. right? And, um, of course, then you get to the top and there's, like, champagne and stuff. <laughs> uh, so that for me, when I got to the top the first time, the thing I was most struck by was obviously the view of the city and what it offers, not just as a like, – selfies weren't really a thing then, I suppose, but not just as a selfie moment or a moment to get photographs with your family, but – as a way to kind of reconstruct mentally the city that you're looking at. Uh, because obviously you experience the city on your feet, you're used to seeing buildings and you're mapping the city in your mind a certain way, right? And you get to the tower and now you're looking at the actual physical real city, not from a map, not from Google Earth, but with your own eyes and Paris is fairly flat. And there it all is in a 360 degree view. And that's a very peculiar and very different um, way to see a city and I think understand it and that was something that really really struck me and that's also why I think since that first visit I always make a point to go to the toppest tower the toppest point of any city because there's another dimension that it offers yeah David we would travel well together uh, I'm the same way I mean if there's an opportunity to go up in height uh, and look over a city I will take that opportunity um, I think the interesting thing to just add on to what you were saying about the Eiffel Tower is, you know, unlike some of the other structures where you would go to some level to, to oversee and overlook um, a city and its surroundings, the Eiffel Tower, you don't even have to get in the elevator. Uh, you could just climb the stairs. That is an option. And that's not an option in a lot of these monuments that, that uh, take you to great heights. 
Um, so, you know, with the Eiffel Tower, it's like you could literally just climb the steps. I don't know how many steps it is, but it's a lot. Uh, and in fact, I actually think if I remember correctly in 2005, because I was a student studying abroad, I didn't have very much money uh, at that time. And, and I actually think that I did climb the steps to save money from, from having to take the elevator. Wow. <laughs> that's that's a lot it's a long climb <laughs> yeah it's a long I, mean, I think time. it is a long climb but hey when you have no money you, you know you want to you want to rise to great heights 100 <laughs> percent. we we uh the, i know we're not talking about uh china of course but um the first time i visited china we went to the great wall it's similar right you have to see the great wall and um there's different ways you can get onto the wall there's different points and uh, we went during the summer of 2008 incredibly hot and humid. I've never experienced such hot and hotness and humidity at once. And uh, we did not know that like, you know, half an hour drive down on the wall, there's a, a point to get on, which has a, a gondola. We didn't know that. <laughs> so we took the route that was something like 2,400 steps or something insane. But, um, you know, it's it's an experience uh, that's worthwhile, I, su I suppose, and it makes the reward at the top that much sweeter um, and sweatier. <laughs> Super sweaty. <laughs> they should have showers, like, on yeah. the side of all of these. <laughs> and it's been, again, it's been so long, and now I'm trying to remember, can you even actually get to the very top just from stairs? I don't know if they allow that or not, but here nor there, I, I know that um, my, my point was that you're sort of, you know, you're, you're out to the element. Uh, you're not going into a building and getting into an enclosed elevator and, and rising to great heights. Um, it's it's a very different experience. For some reason, yeah. I recall that they may have shut down uh, the the stairs for the entire climb, and you you can only get to like I don't know what level it is. There's but like a second floor, yeah, that's about a hundred or hundred and twenty meters, um, I believe, above ground level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think I think at least for now, and I'm not sure if it's like a terrorist threat thing or a pandemic thing, but I, I recall hearing something recently that for the stairs you can only get, you know, at least some sometime recently can only get to that second level. But um, so note, have you guys? Do you have a perception of how generations have evolved uh, their thinking and and um, uh, you know, enjoyment of these types of landmarks? That is a really interesting question. And we were uh, talking about this last night. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's so many ways to tackle this. I I'd say, first of all, uh, with the Eiffel Tower, um, going back to the fact that it's very different from many other structures because it's not programmatic. Um, most, I mean, there's like a restaurant and, you know, they have a tourist shop at the top, but it's not, like I said, it's not a building. It's not the Freedom Tower. It's not the uh, Empire State Building. It doesn't have a function to it. And um, that was also why when it was proposed by its designer, it was met with confrontation because it was like, why are we <laughs> going to build this giant useless thing? And at the time, right, it was the tallest structure in the world. So you have to really imagine that that's pretty mind-blowing to create a structure of that size for a uh, a fair, essentially, right, um, and have it not really have any purpose. At the same time, uh, speaking as a totally not French expert, I would say that's quintessentially French to do something like that. Oh, is it? Um, but so the, the fact that the tower doesn't have a, a, a more utilitarian or pragmatic purpose is what gives it its, I think, power, right? 
because there's something about it being this literal open framework structure that's void of any more specific meaning. It allows, I think, all of us to kind of project a certain kind of imagination and emotion toward this this thing, right? I can't have the same emotion as I do uh, with the Eiffel Tower as I would. I can't have the same emotion toward like the Freedom Tower, right? Because it's lined with offices, also 9-11 and stuff, but or, or the Pearl Tower, for example, like it, it has a different sensation because of its physical presence, but also because of the Right, the the lack of purpose that the Eiffel Tower has, and it's very hard to actually classify it in a way, right? Like, is it a monument? Is it a landmark? Is it an art piece? Mm -hmm. You know, like it's not a building per se. It's not enclosed. It's not programmed really, but it's it has this kind of symbolism and and meaning to people. So it's it's kind of an anomaly in a way. I feel right. Yeah, I mean, I I can't think of. I mean, I'm not a historian, but I can't think of any other uh, objects or towers that I know of that, that have the same qualities that we just described. Um, so, but to your question about generations, I, th I think that's where, I think I might have said earlier, that's where it's interesting to see like how an, a, a, a structure has a certain meaning before it gets built, then when it's built, and then, you know, the first 10 years of its life, and then fast fasting uh, forward to to now, right, with the Eiffel Tower. But that that lack of of inherent meaning, um, I think is important for the Eiffel Tower, and that's what makes it special. So I don't know. I think it's. I think the Eiffel Tower is able to evolve and kind of absorb whatever meaning we give it over time better than other towers because of that. Does that make sense? Kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a great point because, like, uh, we talked about the yeah. Space Needle, how it just recently underwent its 100 year uh, anniversary, and, and did a massive renovation on it hmm. and that brought it basically up to date um, because of the advancements in technology, some things that they were able to do because over its evolution, there was concern of people jumping off of the, the top of the um, Space Needle. So then over time, it became this like cage on the top. Um, mm. But since advancements in technology, they were able to change that to more glass on the outside and on the inside of the observation deck. So it's much more open and has a, the original feeling to it while providing safety. So um, that's interesting that you point out, you know, the, the possibility to evolve. Um, but the Eiffel Tower doesn't need that. Like what it is is what it is, but it can change with people's understanding of it and connection to it without it changing itself. Yeah, and there's a, a really wonderful article. I think it's an excerpt from a book, actually, by uh, the physical philosopher, right? Uh, Roland Barthes. Bar well, how do you say it in French? Roland Barthes. Okay, there we go. <laughs> by him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he talks about this. And um, he also kind of says that the tower is more of a crystallizer rather than a, a true object. And I think that's a really interesting observation to make. Um, that, again, this has to do with the, the openness and the, the lack of... of uh, I don't want to say lack of meaning, but the, I don't know, lack of specific historical reference or it's not trying to to mark a date or mark an event necessarily. Um, so I think that's interesting. I, I think that, that, it, that the fact that the tower acts more of a bridge kind of between um, oneself and the city of Paris or the people of Paris is something that uh, I think might be unique to structures that are open and 
blank or nude or empty. And in particular with the Eiffel Tower, because it is just structure. There's no layers of like, uh, you know, structure and then um, insulation and then cladding and yada, 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 yada. It's just pure structure. And there's something quite uh, beautiful and, and engaging about that. Yeah. Now, now, going back to the generation, like one of the thoughts that I've had is with the transition into more technology focus uh, generation that millennials and Z are, I think there's been sort of what Michelle referenced earlier is this change in how we relate to spaces and things come become like a, a checkbox of I need to if you weren't there if you didn't get a photo if it's not on Instagram did it exist so there's <laughs> there's sort of this checklist mentality of I got to get there I have to take the photo and then I'm done but there's not like a real appreciation and mental connection to spaces mm -hmm. uh, or these landmarks um, in my mind that's kind of how I, I see it. any thoughts on that I think you're I think you're spot on on that um I even noticed that with myself and again I'm I'm very well traveled I've been to a lot of places and I find myself now in this Instagram era of being more focused on getting the shot than just sort of savoring the experience um and I don't think it was like that back then I mean I did talk about how when I was in Paris and all I was doing was was using my little digital camera and shooting photos but but yeah, I, I do think there's some truth to that. Yeah, I know. I agree with both of you. Um, I think there's, for me, I think the the question is how how engaged we are with the cities that we're with that we're in and engaged with the built environment. And of course, I'm a bit biased because I'm an architect and urban designer. But I think there's something profoundly meaningful to having a, a higher level of engagement. And I think one of the the highest forms in, in that case is when you're navigating through a city. Um, so are there different ways to navigate? I think there's, on the extremes, there are using landmarks. Uh, I say a, a giant, usually very tall kind of object in the distance. And you're just looking at that in the periphery to kind of guide roughly where you are. You know, so if I'm in New York City, I look at the, uh, the what's the 57 Leonard? The Tower by Herzog and Demiron in so I'm, I'm forgetting all my things. Yeah, so. Tri Tribeca, so whatever, whatever. That's like the tallest tower in that era because they bought all the air rights and whatever. If I know I need to head that direction, I use the sun or I look at that tower and it kind of guides me as to where I'm going. That's one way of, of getting, throughout, getting through the city. On the other end of the spectrum, you have kind of going block by block, which is you look at one street sign, you read the graphic, you read the text, right? And it tells you in a less spatial way that you are at this point and you navigate in that in that sense. I tend to believe that navigating uh, through the landmark way is a little more um, rewarding. I'd, I'd prefer to see people kind of have a general sense of direction, feel free to get lost or meander until they get to where they need to go, right? And and this gets back also to, I think, what you two were saying about the prescriptive nature in which we experience cities or navigate. And I, and I, and I tend to, to, to believe that that's not a good thing when we over-prescribe our destinations and ultimately the life and the way we live. And so I, that's why I think that using just physical things kind of in the distance can be... Um, quite powerful. I'm so glad you said that. Um, <laughs> it's such a, a beautiful way to put it in that 
you embark on this journey and you have no idea what you're going to stumble across on the way, but you know sort of your frame of reference of whatever that, that object, that landmark is in the distance, and you know back to what you said, Marina, it's part of the canary in the coal mine. You you have that comfort level of, you know, I got to get somewhere in that area or I know where I'm trying to get to in relation to that. So I'm okay, but I can just go on this journey and see what, what comes up. I have no idea exactly what I'm going to encounter, but I know I'm safe. I just know where I got to get to and I'm just going to enjoy what I come across on the way. The the first time that I was in Paris, uh, in France, um, we it was a study abroad uh, situation, is in the case for many people. And there's a small group of us that would go around and kind of visit Paris and other places. And um, we, in our group, were all from different parts of the country and uh, the United States. And one of us was from Korea. Um, and the guy who kind of led the group was this pretty brash individual from from Boston. Um, love him to death. And he had this thing where he would just kind of just go. And his rule was you never, when you have to come back, you know, to your dorm or your whatever it is, you, you never take the same route. And uh, that's incredibly risky because if you don't, like now you have an iPhone, right? And presumably in most people. So if you get lost, you can always kind of, you're, you're safe in a certain sense. You have a safety net. But at that time, we didn't have iPhones. No one had iPhones. So uh, there's a few cases where we just, we got back on the trail, like just by luck <laughs> and it could have ended really terribly, but there's something very powerful to that. Right. And I, and I've always remembered that mindset that he had and I try often to employ it, but I think it is difficult now because of Google earth, Google maps, Apple maps, and Instagram and the need to, to fill that social media void. It's difficult, right? Because it's much easier for us to say uh, that based on all those tools and Yelp, uh, that I can plot out six, half a dozen places to visit of this new city, hit them in one day. And I've, as you were saying, I've checked all the boxes, I've seen the stuff, and I know with a high degree of certainty that it's going to be a wonderful experience. Um, and that's true, but man, that's, there's a lot that you're missing out on if you operate only that way. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that you, you have to avoid all those uh, tools, but they are just tools. And I think you have to leave some room for improvisation. That's true. That's and true. your head is literally down. <laughs> looking yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and actually we noticed that on several of our trips, you know, we always pack a DSLR too with us because you got to document the trips. You don't know, you know, we went to Japan a couple of years ago. We're like, we got to take a bunch of photos. We don't know when we're going to go back next. And some days we're like, you know, I don't even want to take photos. I want to be in the moment. I want to pay attention to where I'm walking, to the people that live here, to, you know, the smallest details that are not Instagrammable. No one really cares, but that I've never seen before, but here. And I think... I think it's important to sometimes yeah just switch off the phone or like go back to the pocket camera and take you know <laughs> take some old school shot where you actually meant to take that picture and and you took it for yourself and not for the gram you know for the gram yeah yeah <laughs> I had written down this question and I don't really know where it leads to but I was wondering if you can actually create an authentic landmark today because most landmarks and monuments which are not necessarily the same things they were created to kind of mark a historical event of some kind or to 
be in celebration of an emperor, some kind of ruler that probably had a lot of poor people building the thing for them. And um, and so a lot of monuments and landmarks have rely on a lot of uh, symbolic gestures to give them meaning. And of course, that meaning wears off over time. Sometimes it doesn't. But I don't know if you could construct such a uh, such a monument today because I feel like, generally speaking, the the door to to meaning has been kind of like blasted open. So we live in a much more heterogeneous society, a heterogeneous understanding of design and architecture. And that's also where I think the Eiffel Tower has aged incredibly well and will continue to do so. And I and I'm skeptical of of new structures that don't employ maybe the same level or close to it, uh, same level of nakedness to its architectural identity. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Kind yeah, of? Right. It's, it's, it's fascinating because if you think about landmarks around the world, a lot of them were tied to the World's Fair and we don't mm. have that anymore. Um, and we're, we're a very capitalistic society across the world now. So everything that's created has to be utilit- uh, utilitarian and, and has to be, has some purpose of day-to-day purpose. So, uh, hmm, I, I don't know that we can get, I, I struggle to see the route that we could get back to that um, mm-hmm. unless someone, you know, ponied up the cash to, to create this World's Fair type of um, environment again. You know what landmark uh, comes to mind for me that was built recently and arguably is not very authentic, um, but would be an interesting landmark to follow to see if in 50 years or 100 years it, it is, uh, is at the Grand Canyon, um, uh, Grand Canyon West to be specific. And I think it's called Skywalk, if I remember. But you know, the, the structure that extends from the side of the cliff and goes out, uh, what is it, 70 oh, right. meters um, in a loop. And I actually was there uh, two months ago and uh, actually six weeks ago. And I have to say, when I was there, it, it didn't feel, it, I didn't, it didn't feel like it felt to go to the Eiffel Tower or to go to the Statue of Liberty or... Um, you know, the Sears Tower, it felt different. It felt a little more forced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you think about that structure, I think in many ways it is an engineering feat. Um, it's been created not out of some event or World's Fair situation. It's It was done because some, I, my understanding is some investor, Chinese investor, uh, thought that, hey, this is something we ought to do. Um, but isn't that sort of selling an experience? Exactly. Exactly. It's selling an experience. But so that's where I'm saying like right now it doesn't feel authentic and it feels like it was done. Who knows why, hmm. but in 50 years or a hundred years, will people look back at that and say, look, wow, this, this investor who billionaire investor who sort of had this vision um, and the Hualapai tribe who said, yes, let's do this, you know, in, in 50 years or 100 years, will, will they be as famous, well, famous maybe isn't the right word, but will they be as known or um, revered as someone like Mr. Eiffel when he created the Eiffel Tower in the, you know, I guess, you see what I'm, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think for this particular example, it's a little tricky because 
I would tend to think that the actual landmark or monument is the Green Canyon, right? And this sky bridge (laughs) is kind of a platform for us to experience it in a different way. And I think that's probably why we feel like it's not that authentic. It's because the authenticity is all around it. It's not it, right? But to your point, like I was wondering uh, yesterday, you know, in New York, they are like building those, those high rises that try to touch clouds, right? And they are like, pushing the, the the limits to how high you can build. And that reminded me, yeah, the Eiffel Tower was built and it was the highest structure at some point and we made it a landmark. Would we make those towers in New York by Central Park landmarks too because they kind of push the limits and the knowledge and the engineering? Or are we kind of past that now because we know we have the ability to do such construction? Mm-hmm. Like what is now the criteria to make landmarks today? You know, is it technology? Is it aesthetics? Is it events in history? Is it culture? What is it? Oh, God. Right? No, but I I think that goes back to the question of generation and and the meaning of landmark at the time they are, are, you know, they are classified as as so, right? And, And then it also makes me wonder should we be questioning landmarks? Should we be questioning their status? Is our landmark supposed to be forever? Or our landmarks maybe just for fifty years, and then after that it doesn't make sense. Or, or you know, it's maybe another building's turn to be a landmark. Like, what is? You know, what's so interesting about that question. I, I love this question, and I, I love the direction we're kind of going with this podcast. When you, when you, as you were talking about that, what I kept thinking about Demetrius was the Mercedes-Benz uh, Stadium in Atlanta that we did a podcast on. Yeah. And how today that just kind of seems like a really amazing engineering sort of feat, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a landmark, right? Like you don't feel like, oh, that's like a landmark. Um, But then I compare that to something like Wrigley Field in Chicago. And I don't know, maybe you guys disagree, but I kind of feel like Wrigley Field is like a landmark. Like when you go to Chicago, it's kind of one of those things that you sort of want to see. You either want to go to a baseball game and if not go to the baseball game, you kind of want to stand outside the iconic sign and say, hey, I was I was here at the stadium and I peered through the chain link fence in the outfield and yeah, yeah. I kind of saw that. But like, yeah. what is so special about Wrigley Field? Time. Just, it, I just, think that's time. Yeah. yeah, right. So so then you so the question then becomes, you know, take like the Mercedes Benz Stadium in Atlanta. So it doesn't necessarily feel like a landmark today, but will it in 50 years or 100 years? I, yeah, I think time is a factor. I think also, and this is that's where I, this is a larger kind of question: is that we're living less in a monoculture, right? And again, a lot of the monuments of the past they were a representation and an encapsulation of that monoculture, or there's a, a very strong identity to a, a particular city and in its relationship to a sports team or whatever, and that becomes like epitomized by this formal thing, the stadium or the tower or whatever. But I, or maybe it's the circles that we're within, but I kind of feel like, well, we have the election, which is kind of proving my point wrong. But I, I kind of feel like maybe that, that you know, monocultural mindset is maybe disappearing and dissipating a little bit. And so that's where I wonder if you can have a, a monumental landmark structure that uh, one that uses symbolism, especially, it does that even make sense anymore? Um, and I don't, I don't really know if it does. I, I think there, there are performative ways to critique 
a landmark if you were to create to create one. And certainly the experience of the people visiting it and the views that it creates for the city and et cetera, that's probably a good base to start with, right? And then maybe the other stuff for me is secondary in a sense. Yeah. So I I think we've pretty much put the pressure on the audience. uh, let us know what you think to to look at or to consider you know what does the landmark even mean today um which is why i think it's a fascinating series for us to to continue is to continue to question and and uh examine and try and figure out you know what does a landmark mean what is the value of it what do we get out of it what can we get out of it as we continue how do you recreate it <laughs> to your uh, to to your guys's questions? Um, and I think it's just a, a fascinating subject to continue to examine and and look at from different perspectives uh, and different um, m- monuments that are out there now. So um, yeah, and and just to tack onto that, the the monetization factor too, right? right. So. So why are you making a landmark? Either you have a lot of pride and you want your name to be known in history or there's some way to monetize it. Yeah. I think the latter is pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. And that that's where, like Demetrius, you were saying the world's fairs, right? That's If we can get back to that mindset for some of the things, these things, I think it'd be really fantastic because there's, there's an, an understanding of the object just being beautiful, the object and its relationship to the people, its immediate people around it, right, in the city. And that's kind of the most, that's the priority above above anything else, above the, the person who designed it, above the the money it makes, above, I don't know, trying to, again, crystallize whatever event that happened. And that's where, you know, like we were talking briefly about stadiums, like the Olympic Park in Beijing, China, is interesting. You could say a lot of those structures should be landmarks or monu- they are monumental, certainly. But are they a success now that the stadiums are not used? Probably not, right? There are dead spaces. Whereas other ones like the Freedom Tower is used. Uh, the Eiffel Tower is, again, has four feet. It's open underneath. You can move around it. So I think these are the questions that we have to consider as uh, as designers, perhaps more than you know, slapping a face on the side of a building and calling it a day. <laughs> so I think Jeff Bezos can step in here. He has all the capital <laughs> in the world <laughs> to reignite the world's fair. Because I think you're right, like the um, the the Olympics, you know, they there's articles that talk about how dead those are once the Olympics are over and how abandoned. But if somebody like Bezos gets behind uh, a world's fair and continues to create and, or, and continues to... Um, make it a place maybe that's possible come on jeff bezos give us a call (laughs) (laughs) maybe all the amazon uh factories or or distribution centers not factories but distribution centers will be landmarks (laughs) give it some time there's an architectural thesis waiting to happen (laughs) (laughs) so uh so we'll wrap it up here for for this topic today um David, Marina, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation. Um, Listeners, thank you for listening in. Michelle, thank you for being on as well. Um, Good to be back. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, thanks for listening. Talk soon on the next one. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you again to David and Marina. Forgot to tee up their contact info in the recording. So we'll do it in post. 
Make sure to check them out on their website, secondstudiopod.com, and that's all spelled out. And you can find them on social media, Instagram, Twitter, all those things at Second Studio Pod. Make sure to check them out and give them a follow. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.